1967, a man by the name of Charles Hummel wrote an article that was to have a continuing and widespread impact. It was entitled, The Tyranny of the Urgent. And it was followed later by a book, Freedom from the Tyranny of the Urgent. The article begins as follows. Have you ever wished for a 30-hour day? Surely this extra time would relieve the tremendous pressure under which we live. Our lives leave a trail of unfinished tasks, unanswered letters, unvisited friends, unwritten articles and unread books, haunt quiet moments when we stop to evaluate. We desperately need relief. But would a 30-hour day really solve our problem? Wouldn't we soon be just as frustrated as we are now with a 24-hour day? And he goes on, when we stop to evaluate, we realize that our dilemma goes deeper than shortage of time. It is basically a problem of priorities. We live in constant tension between the urgent and the important. He goes on, a man's home is no longer his castle. It's no longer a place away from urgent tasks because the telephone breaches the walls with imperious demands. The momentary appeal of these tasks seems irresistible and important and they devour our time and energy. But in the light of time's perspective, their deceptive prominence fades with a sense of loss. We recall the important task pushed aside. We realize we've become slaves to the tyranny of the urgent. Now that was written in 1967 and I would suggest to you most strongly that things have not improved in the intervening 37 years. Here I am preparing a sermon when suddenly a sign pops up on my computer screen. New message has arrived. Would you like to read it? Yes, no. Even on the screen my hand involuntarily goes to click the mouse and say, well I wonder what that is. My email provider recently told me that my box was full and I needed to remove some of my 6,752 deleted messages. One of the problems with dealing with the tyranny of the urgent is evaluating, is it not, what is important and what is merely urgent. Maybe responding to that cry for help in an email is actually more important at that point than preparing a sermon. But how do I decide with the limited time I have available? And I want to say this is not just a modern problem. It's one that busy people have always faced. And I want to say that it was one that Jesus, the Son of God, faced. He began his ministry, his public ministry, at the age of 30 years old, and he had around 1,000 days to finish the task that God had called him to. And as we've made our way through Mark's Gospel on Sunday mornings this year, under our title, Following Jesus, we find, do we not, that we are following a very busy man. One whom crowds in their thousands flock to hear his amazing teaching, and flock to see and even experience his amazing miracles. How does he decide his priorities? Who to meet? What to do? Where to go? Who not to meet? 
what not to do. Where not to go. Remember, he is the Son of God, but he is also the Son of Man. Subject to the physical limitations that we suffer from. He gets tired. What is striking as you read the Gospel accounts is that Jesus always follows the divine agenda. In fact, he said it's one of the lessons we're to learn from his life. In John 14, 31, we read, Jesus says, The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So, Jesus often does things that surprises everybody else. If you were here last week, you will remember that we saw that Jesus made this decision to cross from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to the east side, the forbidden side, in order to meet with a demoniac. A place that no respecting Jew would ever have gone to. A person that no sensible human being would ever have approached because he was so violent. His priorities were very different from the norm. And then after requesting, uh, after the demoniac is sent back home to tell his friends, Jesus again surprisingly accedes to the demand of the people that he should leave. Please don't say they say, go back home. And so he crosses back to the other side of the sea, to his home base in the, around the town of Capernaum. And as the boat alights, we, the children read it beautifully, as the boat alights, there's a large crowd of people waiting to see Jesus. And among the crowd are two desperate people who want to see him. People who need help. And what follows are two miracles interlinked with each other, inside each other. That's why I've chosen the title, A Miracle Within a Miracle. If you have a Bible, it's going to be helpful to have it in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews. It's Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through to 43. And you'll find it on page 1007 if you have a pew Bible. This technique that Mark has in his Gospel of placing one story inside of another, scholars come up with these great statements, it's, those who write about these things, this is what's called, being called a Markan sandwich. They were the PowerPoint boys, I said, can you find me a sandwich to explain this story? So there you have it. There's a miracle within a miracle. However, what is really important is not just that these two miracles are interlinked, but why they actually happen in this way. And what those present and we are meant to learn from it. And I want you to hold on to this principle that we talked about at the beginning. The tyranny of the urgent. How do you decide what is urgent, what is important? Now notice what Jesus does in the story. It's most revealing. There seems to be a clash of priorities in this story between what is important and what is merely urgent. And that's so often the way Jesus deals with it, it's not what we and those present expect. So, let's begin where the narrative begins. First of all, we have a desperate man, verses 21 to 24. As Jesus begins to walk by the lake, as his custom was, preaching and teaching the crowds, suddenly a man bursts through the crowds and falls on his, on his knees before Jesus. We are told that his name is Jairus, 
one of the few people outside the uh, disciples uh, that we learn the name of the person. His name is Jairus and he is a synagogue ruler. Uh, the synagogue was the building in each neighbourhood where Jewish people came together to meet socially and more importantly to meet with God on the Sabbath. And the responsibility for looking after this was entrusted to a kind of board of, I suppose we'd call them deacons in our language, who were known as synagogue rulers. It was an honour to be chosen for this post, and these people were very highly respected in the community. It's doubtful whether many or any of these people actually followed Jesus. The increasing animosity towards Jesus by the religious establishment ensured that anyone who valued his position in society and the synagogue would steer well clear of this self-styled teacher, untrained, from the uncouth north of Israel. And that's probably what happened with Jairus, we can't be sure, but he probably fell into that category until one particular day when tragedy struck his family, a bolt from the blue. His 12-year-old daughter, Luke tells us, his only daughter fell ill. Despite presumably all the treatment that he tried to get for her, her condition only worsened until it became apparent to everyone that she was dying and that death was not far away. Here's an important man facing an insoluble problem. My little daughter is dying. And it is at this point at desperation point, that Jairus seeks out Jesus, a man whose name is on the lips of all the people, of whom it is reputed that he has the power to heal the sick. He falls on his knees at the feet of Jesus, and he makes an impassioned plea. Please, come and put your hands on her, so that she will be healed and live. It's not a very dignified approach, but when your only daughter is at death's door, it's no time to stand on your dignity. Now, there are many people in our society today, like Jairus, maybe some here this morning in Charlotte Chapel. They're good living people, outstanding members of their community, often churchgoers, but not too enthusiastic. You understand. That kind of thing, they say, is okay for simple souls, especially those who need a prop in life. But it's not very appropriate, it's not very dignified if you're a pillar of society. What would your friends think if you got mixed up in this kind of religious enthusiasm? And all that seems well and good until one day tragedy strikes. The unexpected redundancy. The sudden betrayal by a marriage partner. The unforeseen accident or illness. Especially life-threatening illness. Yours or even worse, that of a loved one. Money, power, influence, can protect you against some of these things, but not all of them. And whoever you are, nothing can protect you against death. Now most people, most of us, push these thoughts to the back of our minds and just hope that it doesn't happen to us. But sometimes a desperate situation drives a desperate person to Jesus. And that is what happens with Jairus. And maybe, who knows, in God's goodness, it has brought you here to this place today. Or maybe sometime in the future, you'll be listening to this on tape. Or you'll download it. Someone will download this on our internet. And listen to this message. And I want to say, if you're in that category, just be thankful. Not for the tragedy, 
but for the fact that God can use a tragedy to bring you to himself. In fact, if truth were told, probably nothing else would bring you to that point where you seek God and the help of his son Jesus. And here's something else to be even more thankful for. That Jesus does not say to Jairus and us, where have you been until now? You're only interested in me, now you're in trouble. Depart from me. No. The response of Jesus is a compassionate response. Luke simply records, so Jesus went with him. Such is the love of Jesus for those who seek him. He does not turn away from us or turn us away. He's revealed in the Gospels as one who is deeply moved with compassion as he encounters all the effects of a fallen world. Broken lives, broken homes, broken marriages, broken bodies. Out of such brokenness he can bring wholeness. If in desperation we seek him out, And like Jairus, plead earnestly for his help. Now, I simply ask you at this point, have you ever been where Jairus has been? Have you ever been at desperation point where you've tried everything else and in a crisis you've cried out to God for help? So Jesus sets off with Jairus to his home with the crowd following. Imagine the scene. They're only going across town probably. And Capernaum wasn't a big town. But in the crowd is another desperate person who also needs the help of Jesus. A person at the opposite end of the social spectrum. Someone we learn is a despised woman. You find that in verses 25 to 34. We are not told the name of this woman. We are simply told that she had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. We can't be sure of the details of her condition, but it's some kind of persistent uterine bleeding. The Jewish Talmud lists some of the recommended cures for this kind of condition in those days. The carrying of the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in summer or a cotton bag in winter. Or a very good cure was supposed to be carrying barley corn found in the dung of a white she-ass. If this is the kind of thing she had been prescribed, it's not surprising that her condition didn't improve and in fact got worse. Progressively she got worse. Mark's mentioned here that she'd spent all her her money on doctors or suffered at the hand of doctors. Uh, Dr. Luke in his gospel tactfully omits this uh, piece of information. (laughs) It's not to criticise the medical profession, but to indicate that as in the case of Jairus' daughter, there seemed to be no cure and Jesus was the last resort. However, we can easily miss the worst part of this woman's situation. It was not just the physical incapacity that she faced, but the social and spiritual effects of this. Her condition made her, in Jewish society, an outcast, ceremonially unclean, barred from worship in the temple. And the book of Leviticus, you can read it in Leviticus 15, anyone who came into contact with her also became ritually unclean and couldn't attend worship. In the case of most women, this was limited to a seven-day period following menstruation. For this woman, it had been 12 long years. Social and spiritual alienation. One commentator writes, she was walking pollution. 
She shouldn't have even been out of doors, let alone mingling in a crowd. And this, of course, was the reason why she chose to remain anonymous in the crowd and reluctant to approach Jesus. Instead, with simple faith bordering almost on superstition, she creeps up behind him in the crowd because she thinks to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now, while there are many people like Jairus who seek Jesus because of a crisis in their lives, I suspect there are probably more, many more, who, like this woman, face a situation that gradually, imperceptibly, gets worse and worse. Perhaps you're again such a person. A person with a problem that seems to get worse. Something perhaps you're even deeply embarrassed about, ashamed about. You've spent all you have. You've tried all you can to resolve this particular problem and yet you and the experts can do nothing. Maybe like this woman, it has alienated you from everyone else. You don't have a great social circle of friends. Maybe you think it even alienates you from church and from God. All your plans and dreams have been frustrated. But there is just one glimmer of hope. Perhaps Jesus can help you and sort out this problem. And that is what this woman hoped and believed. She is anonymous in a crowd. I've discovered over the years I've been here that one advantage of being in a a large church, and there are pros and cons about this, one of the advantages is that in a large, fairly full church like this, you can come and be anonymous. I think if people have said to me, you know, I came to Charlotte Chapel for six months and I sat, I'm embarrassed with whoever's sitting there now, but I sat behind a pillar, I sat in a corner. It wasn't a small church you went into with 12 people and you got asked to sing a solo or do the reading next week, you know? (laughs) And in the anonymity, you can seek Jesus. Now, that, that, that is a positive. And this woman, in the dead end of her frustration, she reaches out and and sees as probably Jewish men, you can read this in the Old Testament as well, they wore a cloak with four tassels on. And she almost certainly reached out and just, as he was going past, she was coming through the crowd, she just grabbed hold of one of the tassels. If I can just touch the hem of his garment. Instantly she is cured. Immediately the bleeding stopped. She felt in her body she was freed from her suffering. And Mark tells us that as soon as this happened, Jesus realized what had happened. That power had gone out from him. So he turns around and asks this surprising question. You can imagine this great big crowd of people, if you've ever been in a football crowd, it's really like that. You know, suddenly turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples say, well, all sorts of people touch you. They're all touching you. But Jesus knows there is one individual here who has exercised personal faith in him and that it is necessary that this woman is identified why you may ask it's vitally important for this woman that she identifies herself not so that as she probably fears Jesus might condemn her for her actions but rather that he might reward her by giving understanding to her faith she needed to understand it was not it was Jesus himself who healed her Not his clothes that had the power to heal. Her faith is clarified. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She needs not just to be freed from her suffering, but to be restored to wholeness. The word peace is a great Jewish word. 
shalom. It's the fullness of all that God intended for us. That healthy relationship with God and with other people. You see, her illness is cured. Her social alienation is ended. Now today, of course, we cannot literally touch the clothing of Jesus as the woman did. Nor do we need to. That is the whole fallacy of the nonsense of relics. It is not necessary, for it is in Jesus and not his garments, shrouds of Turin or whatever they may be, or bits of the cross or whatever, that we must place our faith. It is the word of Jesus, the word of the gospel, which alone can heal us from the sickness of sin and restore us to that relationship with God for which we were made. And again, I pause to ask, have you experienced and responded to the word of the gospel? The Bible talks about being saved, and salvation means wholeness, restored to God, your life put back in order. This is what happened with this woman. And I hope it's happened in your life as well. However, while this has all been going on, imagine the scene. You can imagine Jairus getting increasingly agitated and frustrated. I bet he was hopping from one foot to the other and had they had watches in those days, I bet he was pointedly kept looking at it and you know, saying, come on, come on, come on. Surely, at this point, think about it for a moment, at this point in the story where Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he could have continued on his way uninterrupted with the woman healed, slipping away in the crowd, and none but the woman and Jesus would know that anything had happened. Or, you might concede, if she needed further enlightenment, surely Jesus could have sought her out later. In fact, on two occasions, with a paralyzed man and a blind man, Jesus actually found them later in the day and told them more about what had actually happened and who he really was. Surely, think about the urgent and the important, surely Jairus in his request should get priority treatment from Jesus. Not only was he first in the queue, but his need was more urgent and important as well. His daughter is at death's door. She needs urgent attention. Well, for this woman, let's think about it. Another hour or two is not going to make a great deal of difference when she's suffered from 12 years from her illness. And even if she's healed, surely her theological enlightenment can wait a little bit longer while Jesus rushes, as we would have done, to the home of Jairus. Surely Jesus should have put her in the waiting room, in commas, until his return home back from seeing Jairus. That is what we would expect. That's what everyone else in the crowd expected, not least Jairus. But it is not what happened, not what Jesus did. Remember, here is someone who is always following the divine agenda. It is no mistake, it is a deliberate delay on the part of Jesus. And what we need to learn is, why did Jesus delay? It was for the benefit of Jairus. Let me say this again. We said something on a similar theme last week. Can I say this? When we come to Jesus with our requests, when we bring to God our prayers, God's delays are never real delays. His timing is always perfect. And if you've asked him for something that you believe he wants to do or give, if he has not done anything yet, he has a good reason for making you seemingly wait. Maybe you've been waiting a long time in human terms for what what, what it is that you want God to do for you. And if you've come to Christ in faith and he has not yet answered your prayer, he has a good reason for it. So don't get frustrated. Don't keep hopping around on your spiritual one spiritual foot to the other. Don't keep looking at your watch and pointing to heaven and saying, Lord, 
will you not just get on with my request? He's got his own time. Now why did he delay? Let me suggest at least two reasons why Jesus apparently seems to delay here. First of all, Jairus needs a greater appreciation of the love of Jesus. By society's evaluation, the 12-year-old daughter of a leading citizen was of more importance than an anonymous woman shunned by society for 12 years. Now notice how Jesus responds to this woman. This is the only recorded instance in all of the Gospels that Jesus addresses someone as daughter. Is he not gently reminding Jairus that this woman is also his daughter? His much-loved daughter. As much loved by him as the daughter of Jairus is loved by her father. You see, we always make our own evaluations of people in society. We kind of rank them in order of importance. Let me say in passing that the general record of the church in its relationship to women has not been good. I say without hesitation, Jesus loves women just as much as he loves men. And if you're his child, if you're a woman, you're his daughter. Jesus loves lone parents. And so should we. You see, have you ever thought about this? Tony struck me this week reading it. Strange, isn't it? You read the Bible for years and years and things suddenly hit you. All the 12 years that this man has enjoyed his beautiful little daughter, all those long 12 years this woman has suffered with that illness. Puts a different perspective on it, doesn't it? What an encouragement to every person to, who has no father or mother, husband or wife. Or if they have one who doesn't care, to such needy people, Jesus says, daughter, son, go in peace. Great thing, you, can, you know, that God can so enter your life in such a powerful way that you go out from this place, you come in here feeling nobody loves me. I'm not really appreciated by anybody. And you can so experience the wonderful love of Christ that you go out of here with a changed perspective. Oh, you may need to work through it. But for some people, it's just suddenly you realize that you are loved by God. But there is another benefit to Jairus in this delay. Not only will he gain a greater appreciation of the love of Jesus, but also a greater experience of the power of Jesus. You see, Jairus is about to learn that this man can not only heal the sick, but he can raise the dead. Here's the third and final thing, and our time is going. A desperate man, a despised woman, a dead girl. As Jesus is still speaking to the woman, the worst fears of Jairus are confirmed. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? It's too late. If only Jesus hadn't stopped to talk to that woman. If only he'd kept moving. He could have got there in time. Small town. Maybe it was in the next street. What a tragic and avoidable mistake. As two sisters say to Jesus in a later instance, when their brother dies, when they meet Jesus, they say, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. John 11. 
But Jesus was not there and he did die. He was not there and the little girl died. Instead he was engaging in a theological enlightenment discussion with a woman. Surely he's a victim of the tyranny of the urgent. Instead of realising what is really important here. Surely this only minimises his claims to be the Son of God. Surely it's just a case of what these men say who come from the house of Jairus. He is no more than the teacher. Don't bother the teacher anymore. But in fact there is no mistake. This seeming delay and frustration is deliberately engineered to increase faith in Jesus, which is why he ignores the advice of those who have come with the bad news and says to her father, don't be afraid, just believe. Literally, it's a continuous tense. The word of Jesus to this woman is, keep on believing. First of all, Jesus dismisses the crowd. In every crowd, there are only a few who genuinely seek Jesus, like the woman in the story. The rest are only spectators looking for entertainment instead of enlightenment. So Jesus takes along the inner circle of his disciples, Peter, James and John, so that what happens will increase their faith. And this story has all the marks of an eyewitness account even the words that Jesus uses in the original language. When they arrive at the home of Jairus, they discover that news of the death in the house has already spread. Funeral preparations are already underway, a necessity in a very hot climate. And the official mourners are already there, weeping and wailing, Matthew tells us, playing their flutes. You hired people along to mourn on your behalf. And surely also the family of the dead girl are there present. Their mourning is only too real and genuine. And such scenes are commonplace throughout the world, are they not? For no human society is immune from death and the grief that it brings. Death is a terrible thing and the death of a child especially so. In the face of death we see our own mortality. We are forced to face up to our own impotence. With all our modern technology and medicine, all we can do is prolong life. We cannot avoid death. It's so final. We say, do we not? While there's life, there's hope. While there's death, what is there? Nothing. No hope. All we can do is grieve. But Jesus tells us, keep on believing in the face of mourning. So he addresses the mourners and says to them, while this commotion and wailing, the girl, the child is not dead, she's asleep. Some have read the word sleep here to mean that Jesus was actually saying the girl wasn't really dead, she was only in a coma. But in fact you discover that sleep is a word that Jesus uses of death on other occasions, as with the case of Lazarus. When he says to the disciples, Lazarus is sleeping, and they say, let's go and wake him. He says, actually, he's been dead for four days. This little girl is really dead. But Jesus says to Jairus, keep on believing in the face of death. And he says, keep on believing in the face of ridicule. For the mourners laugh when Jesus tells them the girl is not dead, but only asleep. However, the proof is about to be seen. For the sleeping girl is about to be awakened. It's a beautiful scene. Jesus goes into the room where the body lies. He sees the little girl for the first time. He has no prior diagnosis of her condition. Then he takes her by the hand. Another, another action which, like touching the woman, would render a Jew ceremonially unclean to touch a dead body. Then he speaks to her in an Aramaic mother tongue, Talithakum. Literally in Aramaic it means, Arise, lamb. Arise, lamb. And immediately she stands up and walks around. The sleeper is awakened. 
No wonder those who saw it were astonished. And in order to show she's not some kind of spirit, Jesus tells them practically, give us something to eat. Now we're almost finished and our time is going, but I want to conclude what we're saying by noticing how the story concludes. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. Now, think about it. And our theme, the urgent, the important. Why not? Surely there is no shortage of dead bodies and grieving parents. Surely there is no shortage of sick people. Surely in the challenge of the tyranny of the urgent, this is the most important thing of all. This should be the priority of Jesus. To raise the dead. But Jesus doesn't want anyone to know about it, for he has another agenda, the Father's agenda. The priority of Jesus is to die. At the end of this remarkable 1,000 day ministry, Jesus hung on a cross and cried, It is finished. His life work, he says, is finished. Not in despair, it's completed. I've done it. I've finished what the Father sent me to do. But have there not still thousands of desperately sick men and women? Thousands of grieving parents? How could his work be finished? Only if we understand what his work is. And was. The work he came to do was to die. In our place. Paying the penalty we deserved. The wages of sin. So that we might receive the gift of eternal life. He died so that we might live. And next Sunday we'll celebrate this fact that on Easter day he rose again. The Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in Corinth says, he is the first fruits of those who sleep. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be raised to life. You see, in the earthly ministry of Jesus, we have the record of only three people that Jesus raised from the dead. A daughter of Jairus, a son of a widow woman, and a brother of Mary and Martha. You ask, why? Couldn't you have done a lot more? They are a foretaste, a proof of what Jesus one day will do when daughters and sons and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and grandparents who have died in Christ will be raised to life. This is the gospel. It's good news. Wonderful news. He is the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in him will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in him will never die. That's the work he came and finished. This is the good news. It puts sickness into perspective. It gives meaning to death. There's nothing else will. So let me conclude with the words of Jesus himself from John 5. Listen carefully. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come, it's already begun. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not be amazed at this. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. 
Now the question is this, and I really do conclude here. You've heard the word of Jesus, what he offers, and I simply ask, have you believed in Jesus and his word? Have you committed your life to him? Is he your saviour? And Lord, because if so, no matter if sickness strikes, no matter if death comes, these are terrible effects of a fallen world, but they're not the end of the story. The end of the story will come when Christ returns. And the dead in Christ will rise and we who are left will be caught up in the clouds with the Lord to meet them in the air. Therefore, says the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians, comfort yourselves with these words. This is the hope, the glorious hope of the gospel, the glorious hope of Easter. If it is not your hope, then you are a victim of life's circumstances. Something could happen this week that could wipe out all your hopes. And one day you will die and that will be the end of all your hopes. Unless you are in Christ then you have hope. A hope that goes beyond the grave. And this is the good news. And I plead with you to put your faith in the one who alone can give you that life and hope. Let's pray together.